Talking Landscape Photography with Kristen Fletcher and Carwin. How are you, legends? How are you, legends, indeed? And we are chatting to a legend of uh, Australian landscape photography. His name is Mr. Tony Hewitt. And uh, just on Tony, Tony and I and uh, possibly Christian Fletcher are planning a photo walk for November the 22nd, which is a Sunday. Tony, is this actually going to happen, mate? I don't know. You just announced it, so I think it better. Well, that um, make, makes it real. I'm then. just checking something. Was it November the twenty? Was November the twenty second? Twenty second. Although I do take I do take umbrage at the fact that I'm I'm not a legend. I am not a legend. Oh, I stop mean, it! You are. Th- there are real legends out there, and I think we're going to be joined by one today. But I certainly aren't a legend. So, no, twenty second of November. Uh, we're going to start down in Fremantle, just uh, in the Esplanade Park, opposite the Esplanade Hotel. Mm. Uh, so you can park along there somewhere in the car park there and we'll meet just in front of the Esplanade Hotel on the park and then we're going to take mm. a bit of a wander through the streets mm. and we're going to, uh, we'll call it Walking Landscapes with Carwin and Tony. There you go, how's that? Mate, that's awesome. And, and Fletch. And look, I've got to say, within a about a one kilometre radius of where you're talking, there are just landscape shots everywhere for for instance you can walk down to fishing boat harbour you can get a, a shot of those you know the fishing boats tied to the jetty um you can get some photos of bon scott you know sunrise coming um you know the light over the ocean that sort of stuff so it's going to be pretty awesome i reckon well i've i've done over a thousand shoots in that area i used to mm. have a studio for 12 years in fremantle east mm. fremantle but uh, i was going to say cohen it, it doesn't have to be restricted to landscape and i, I think as we walk We'll basically be chasing the light, looking at shape and form and mm. textures and, you know, whether you photograph people or places or just abstracts, I think there's something there for everybody who wants to get out on a Sunday morning and, mm. you know, shoot the breeze and come out and shoot something else as well and then we'll end up having a coffee in a cappuccino strip. All right, awesome. So it's definitely happen- happening. That's uh, November the 22nd, uh, which is a Sunday. And we better give them a time, but we could probably talk about that later. Uh, yeah, we'll figure that out later. Uh, just want to add, too, Christian Fletcher is not with us today, but um, he's with us in spirit uh, because we've uh, we've managed to crank up the uh, Auto Fletch 3000, so that's going to make a bit of a guest appearance later. But he's actually uh, riding his bike from Kalamunda to Albany. So can you explain that for our non-West Australian listeners, Tony? Uh, well, that's just crazy. a long way. A thousand, it's a thousand kilometers. It's um, not overly mountainous. It's not the Tour de France, mm. but uh, it's got a few hills. And I just can't explain it because I wouldn't ride that far. I don't even ride to the shop. Mm-hmm. I get in the car. Mm. But um, yeah, it's a long way. It's uh, I don't know. We've got someone here who could tell us how far distances are because he's been to pretty much every corner of the planet. Is that him coming now? Can I hear him? That's his brother, Sir Peter Eastway. Welcome to the program. Ah, oh, there he is. Welcome, Peter. <laughs> oh, I just managed to get here in time. That, would that sound authentic? Oh, I don't oh, know. Right. I've told you, if you're out walking the corgis, use the mini moak, don't walk. <laughs> hey, guys, we um, it's great having both of you in the same room because we spoke to... Uh, <laughs> the same room? <laughs> the same country. Um, we spoke to Murray Fredericks last week. I'm not sure if you actually checked that uh, interview out yet, yeah, Pete, but... You know, basically, he figured out a way to go to South Australia, uh, do the whole quarantine thing, um, took half a million dollars worth of camera equipment, um, you know, broke his Prado, his Prado broke down, ended up going back on a truck, once-in-a-lifetime storms. Have you guys ever been through stuff like that? Pete would have. God, he's been more places than most people. 
Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I find that whenever you go um, once-in-a-lifetime storms, yeah, I, I don't know, it's hard to, it, certainly once-in-a-lifetime for me, but I, I do find that when you go away somewhere for, say, two weeks or more, it, it's you've got a very good chance of having a fantastic weather event happening at some stage. And mm. so I know when we do a lot of workshops and, you know, something will happen and uh, go, oh, that was fantastic, and, and it was, but... I, I would find it unusual to go away for a two-week period without something happening. Now, mm. obviously, there are certain places in the world where the weather conditions don't change for six months on end. I did, I mean, I did Africa for 28 days and we had half a day of cloud and for the rest of it, it was just, you know, blue skies without a cloud. So there are different, you know, situations like that. But, you, know, you go mm. to Iceland, you go to almost anywhere in Australia and uh, I think that within... Uh, a very short period of time, you're likely to get a weather change. Mm. I'm guessing, Pete, Antarctica, you'd get a lot of changes every day, wouldn't it? It's like yeah, if, if you don't like the weather, you wait five minutes. It's uh, mm. even even more changeable than Tassie. Uh, I mean, it is interesting too when we talk about Antarctica. I've done a few voyages down there now, and I know quite a few people have just done the one, and they say, oh, we really just had you know, maybe half an hour of sunshine and the rest of the time was overcast. And mm. that's true. You can have long periods of time where it is not, not. you know, I've probably done three or four trips down there where I've just had that overcast light, but there's always that half a day or that one opportunity when it lights up and it's, you know, you just got to be ready for They're it. Ready I think for it. It, I, 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 I've really missed, I think, with weather. Uh, maybe it's also what you make of it, perhaps. Do you know, I, I was listening to Murray and um, I couldn't help thinking just imagine the amount of logistical planning that would go into that trip. Um, what are some of the travel hacks for planning something like that, guys? It's, um, you know, I've got to say, to be totally honest, all the travelling I've done over the years and I still can't get it right. And, I, you know, I may be the only one, but I, I sit there a couple of days before... I do my loose sort of spread out of what I'm going to take and depending what we're doing. And, you know, nowadays people aren't necessarily planning to go across the world, but even if you're just travelling down, you know, close to home, through your own state, you know, close you know, to areas you're allowed to get to, I still find it hard to say what should mm. I bring and what shouldn't I bring and end up bringing too much usually. But Pete, no, Tony. I mean, I, I know whenever we <laughs> travelled with you, we, we'd all have 30K and you'd be the only one with 130K. Yeah, come on. The is last that, couple of true? trips I... I was proud to put my bags on the, the baggage rack at the airports and I was under. Normally I'm over but I did, and I had to sweet talk the people at the counter. But, you know, you've got to be honest, the last Ooh. couple I was under 32. Have you, 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 you haven't proved, Tony, that, that's true. Have you seen that, that uh, meme going around, that guy at the airport, he's getting his luggage weighed and he's, he's actually got his foot under his bag? Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> so tried that. <laughs> do, you, do you ever do stuff like that, fellas? I'm not going to say because, you know, yep. they might change. I, I can remember doing a, uh, a job in um, Iceland once and we was, I was there with a film crew and um, <laughs> we, we, all stuck, we all basically went, it was an internal flight and we all lined up um, one by one and we walked up to get our tickets one by one and whereas everyone else kept their bags back at the other end and then uh, they, they, they went and walk, walked on and managed to get lots and lots of gear on. Mm. On another occasion, that same crew was uh, were down in um, down the tip of, uh, was it uh, Port of Williams, I think it was down the down bottom of Chile and um, we were all lining up out on the tarmac to get on the plane and there was a guy coming along trying to weigh stuff and I can remember the director running around the outside of this line saying, you're not taking it, you're not 
not taking it, talking about his case, which was probably 30 grams, 30 <laughs> kilograms. It was the most funny thing I've ever seen. But he was tenacious and he got on board and uh, I won't say who it was to uh, protect the guilty. Well, I remember Pete and I were given these jackets in New Zealand on one of our trips and uh, they are ridgeline as big, big sort of um, weatherproof hooded. Sheepskin lined um, or? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. What were they made of, Pete? They, they're... <laughs> No, they weren't sheepskin. They were like a really heavy cloth with uh, uh, it was a in, in, inside sort of vortex lining yeah. and all of that. Mm. But they've got these massive pockets on the outside and the inside. And of course, internal flights sometimes, even you know, and this is something, mm. even if you're not travelling overseas, people will find with the amount of tourism within the country now and flying on local airlines, you know, if, you know, little Fokker, Fokker planes and the the little um, French planes, they narrow overhead compartments you can't get as much luggage on so mm. these sort of big jackets where you can load up you know a couple of lenses on the outside and a couple of lenses on the inside oh, and right. a few hard drives in the back pocket mm. you can get away with carrying an extra 15 20 kilo in those mm. jackets mm. i know i did just look just uh, going back to that uh, thing with murray because you know obviously we we can't uh, travel as extensively now as we as we could um but in terms of organizing something like that and this is look, i've just got to level with you guys i mean you know Logistically, I will forget something just driving you out of the shops. But how do you organise a trip within Australia and not forget anything and, and try and make the planets actually align? Lists. You've got to have lists. Yeah, lists. That's what your iPhone or your smartphone's for. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I've done, Carwin, over the years, I was telling, talking to Peter about mm. this the other day, in, in, my, uh, in my second office where I store stuff, I've got these big containers, big, uh, those big plastic ones you get from Bunnings or whatever. And um, I've now got to the point where, like, one will have my Northern Australia stuff, you know, shorts, uh, breathable shirts, uh, you know, stuff that I need in, in a hot, sweaty climate. And then I've got other ones with thermals and snow boots and stuff. Now, Pete probably uses these more than me, but being from WA, I don't need snow boots unless I leave the state, which is not happening at the moment. Mm. So I've got these boxes, which have made it a lot easier because when a trip's coming up, I'll just go in there and depending where I'm going, I'll pull out that box and that's got a lot of what I need. But certainly on top of that, I've now got lists to make sure, you know, gloves, have I got the gloves, have I got the heat bags, have I got the this, that and everything else. So that helps a lot. What about you, Pete? Well, I, I, I'm with the clothes, I'm not normally so worried because I hardly have because I'm not like Tony, I don't go 30k over my weight limit, but I normally don't have much extra capacity for clothes. So I've, I've got the lists for my camera gear and my computer gear, the lighting gear, whatever it is, and I, they're on my iPhone. Mm. And those lists will change as you know, you, you, you get new equipment, get rid of equipment, etc. So yeah. it's sort of it's a movable thing. But then I basically, I, and I'm like Tony, I before each trip, I'll work out, well, what is the focus going to be? Is it going to be wildlife? Is it going to be landscape? Are we going to be trekking? Are we going to be shooting out of a car, out of a plane? And that'll change the camera bag that I'm going to take or the camera bags that I'm going to take. Because you can only, if you're going to fly anywhere, you can only take one on board. And so I'll mm. often put a second camera bag in my checked luggage and yeah, just make sure there's lots of clothing. So the clothing is really used as padding. And I put gear in there that if I get to the other end and my suitcase doesn't arrive, I can get by without it. I won't uh -huh. be happy, but I can still do the shoot without it. So so that's your the contingency you've got set up is you, in your mind, you're like, my stuff may not actually show up. Well, that it does. It's a possibility. It's happened to me. You know, I remember Les Walkling, um, had a, he had this massive tripod, like a surveyor's type tripod. It was huge and a big case. Like it looked like a trombone case or, or like he was a gangster. But – 
the first time I ever saw him unpack it and he had all his clothes and his, you know, all, all his personal items, everything was in that case with his tripod and it was packed all in there um, so that he didn't even need that separate suitcase. He had his camera bag, which had his cameras and his laptops and he had the tripod case, which had all his clothing and tripod as well, you know. Mm. So there's ways to, as Pete said, using clothing as padding is is genius. You know, that's the way you should do it. Mm, mm. Yeah, I, I think that going forwards too, I mean, it's interesting with COVID having hit, but I, I wonder whether we were going towards a time where, if you remember a couple of years ago, they, they said, they, they had, was it Turkish Airways or someone was worried about taking laptops, laptops. on yeah. board and so they're going to stop that full stop you know and so some airlines i think did for a period and I, I i just think that there may come a point where you know somebody does something to a camera at some stage and the authorities just say right all cameras in the hold i don't know how that's going to solve problems <laughs> but anyway mm. um it, it may be that we're going to all end up with these you know heavy duty plastic cases mm. which we put in the hold and uh, hope that they don't throw around and um hope that they don't steal Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony, um, look, uh, just rewinding the clock a little bit to your Gert by Sea project, what are some of the logistics involved with uh, with planning being in a, a Cessna 210? What was it for? How long yeah, were you flying for? Yeah, so 210. So, yeah, weight was certainly a major priority. Mm. Um, so, essentially, I had one camera bag and one travel bag and then a laptop bag, mm. and uh, clothing was very much just packed in wherever I could fit it. And to mm. be honest, you're sitting in a plane, you'd need, I'm not going out to restaurants, um, you weren't going out on dates, not like Pete. Mm. Um, you know, most of it was just shorts and T-shirts and mm. comfortable. There's a couple of, couple of, you know, blokes in the plane with you, that's it. And when you get yep. to a place, you're going straight to a motel, mm. uh, checking in and getting out in the morning back in the plane. So we didn't have a lot of clothing as such, maybe... Mm one jumper, one wet wet sort of overcoat or something and, mm. a, and a pair of jeans. Most of it was shorts. And then halfway around, I bought a couple of pairs of board shorts and T-shirts purely because mm. I was bored mm. with what I was wearing. That Did- was easy. It was camera bag and packing. You know, it's, whether you're in a plane or whether you're in a car on the road, mm. I think one of the things that people learn sooner or later is how you pack if you want to be flexible on the road, mm. how you pack the car so things are accessible, mm. there's no point in having a 600mm lens packed in your suitcase underneath everything else if you're driving along the road hoping to spot wildlife from the car. You know, you've got to have it readily accessible. And mm. I've often travelled with a 7200 on a 35mm sitting on the seat next to me or, mm. you know, sitting on a, a pillow. I might take a pillow and I had pillows in the plane. We took a pillow mm. each and I the pillow was not just for our heads. It was actually more to... Put on the floor so you could switch cameras quickly and just almost drop them but know they'd be safe so setting yourself up for flexibility i think is important okay well uh, look uh, i reckon guys we just um we kick the uh, auto fletch 3000 in the guts what do you reckon has he ever had anything important to say maybe this thing will sort it out we'll look see. this is this is all a bit random so i actually don't know what's going to happen so let's uh let's just have a listen to this auto fletch 3000 engage so what do you look for when you're in the air tony uh usually a landing strip (laughs) (laughs) um what do you look for when you're in the air that's an interesting thing i don't actually i don't think for me i actually look as much as i try to observe because you there's two ways to do aerial work and that is Mm. one is you go up looking for certain things that you may be identified on google earth or you've heard about or you know you've seen on social media and somebody told you exactly where it is so you go looking for it Mm. but i find 
more recent times, I go up more to just explore and be curious. So I'm looking for shapes and symbols, colour, texture. Mm. Uh, you know, one thing I've learned off Pete, don't tell him, uh, I used to push to go hard more in the middle of the day or middle of the morning, middle of the afternoon. And I was never a huge fan of, you know, early, you know, sunrise, sunset. But over the years with cameras now handling ISO better, mm. um, I'm quite open to going up at first light and getting those long shadows. So I'm just, I don't think it's any different. You know, it really isn't. Whether you're on the road in a car or walking through the bush, you're looking for, you, for me, I'm looking for colour that stands out and grabs my attention or a shape or, or you know, geometry. Um, colour, shape, texture, form, mm. whether it's on the ground or in the air. What about you, Pete? I think you're, you know, the term observation is a good one. If you if you go out with preconceived ideas, I mean, well, that's what you do as a professional because your client's given you a brief and you've got to come back. But if we're going out as enthusiasts, as, as amateurs, just for the love of it, then mm. I think going out and just observing and being receptive is a is a great way of um, approaching it. Uh, yeah, so I, I agree with you. I, yeah, if I go up in the air, it's I'm looking for something that's interesting. I suppose that comes back to the the idea of ideas um a lot of people are looking for the next best um fletcher photographics um whiz bang photoshop uh, technique or whatever to make their photos sing mm. but really it's a matter of having the ideas of you know looking at the work of other photographers painters movie makers authors you know it just getting those ideas and those ideas they're bubbling around inside you then when you go out with your camera suddenly they start to inform what you're looking at what you're observing and and, and i know i know how it is for you but the ideas just flow from there mm. yeah i did a, just come back from photo west uh run by the wapf which is the wa photographic federation so it's their annual conference with all their camera club and they had mm. about i think about 130 people down at pemberton southwest wa and i think Peter, oh, i took you awesome. through pemberton windy harbour and cape de yep, castro yep. salmon beach all that and uh, I did a couple of workshops, and what we did is we went out to a homestead, uh, middle of the morning, middle of the afternoon, so it was harsh light, um, quite open, had a tree over this really, really old, dilapidated house. And when we got there, I could see people's faces, not all of them, but a lot of them were looking going, well, if you're a landscape photographer, what are you doing here in this time of the day, mm. harsh light? And the idea was to think about things in a simple way, simplify it, um, remove all the distractions and break it down into one or two simple elements, and mm. you can do that. Uh, whether you're in the air, whether you're on the ground, I don't think it matters. But what I do find happens is that, as Pete alluded to, those mm. ideas or those things that interest you, um, pictures you might have been uh, exposing yourself to or looking at, mm. um, work that you're really fond of and resonate with, suddenly mm. as you're looking at these shapes and forms of, that are in front of you, mm. something clicks and you go, wow, that reminds me of or that makes me think of. And you find pictures that everybody else misses. And we mm. had a lot of fun exploring it but the key was being curious mm. um staying observant but also you could see those that had a background or something that they've been looking at in the past that mm. they're suddenly connected with which is i think one of like pete said that's one of the strengths mm. yeah. one, one of the, the words you use there tony curious i was just sort of thinking back you know, back years and years ago or you'd go into the advertising agencies where they were designing a shoot or a film or something mm. like that and the word that was in all of the storyboards etc was you know we're going to have this curious look or this is cu you know, curious was the word and mm. it was not only the subject but yourself being curious as well mm. so I think that's a good way to be uh tony can i just ask you this uh thing at pemberton um is this just a um a glorified excuse to get on the cans 
On the cans? Yeah. What do, mean, what do you mean on the cans? Well, did you, you know, did you have a few beers down there with the, you know, the Pemberton crew? Not or? me. No, no. no. There, some of the workshop, you know, people running it went to the whiskey bar because there's actually a really good whiskey bar in Pemberton called at Jasper's. It's a great little restaurant whiskey bar. No, not me. I, I could dob them in, but I certainly <laughs> didn't do that. Um, um, so what actually happened? I mean, what, you know. It's tell a us- conference. So they yeah. do a three-day conference made up of workshops. So they had, you know, people doing bird photography and mm. portrait photography and we had a couple of the sponsors you know team digital were down there with a lot of gear and nikon it was sponsored by nikon australia mm. so michael phillips from nikon was down there with a whole bunch of gear for people mm. um uh people like seng ma georgina steitler uh, and a, a bunch of other people there i can't remember the names i apologize duncan dodd was down there as a model he's the ex nikon rep and maxwell's uh, but 130 people from all the camera clubs and they run workshops and you can pick what you want to do. Early morning shoots on the sand dunes out mm. in Castro, which is some of the largest inland sand dunes uh, in Australia. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, beach shoots, evening shoots, morning shoots. Yeah, the lot. And then I did a keynote at the end to close it all off uh, on the Sunday. Good fun. Oh, very nice. Hmm. Um, I was just, just thinking as you were talking about being curious um, you know, often when we, we go out, uh, and Pete and I have talked about this at, at Karajini workshops we used to run, mm. and often people do workshops and they, they go away, and this is no ref, no reflection on whether certain workshops are better than others, but one of the things I enjoy the most in doing these things is the road trips because mm. with a road trip you might have over a period of days, let's say it's four days or a week or 10 days, you'll have a certain places you're going to and you know what to expect to a degree. So let's say the US trip that Pete and I have done over the last five or six years where we know we're going to go to maybe the Grand Canyon, Death Valley, you know, Monument Valley, whatever. But it's the in-between places that I think are just as important. In fact, they provide mm-hmm. the opportunity for things that are a little bit different and that's where curiosity cuts in and being observant on the road, seeing things that you're passing that two hours later won't look anywhere near as interesting or as good. Mm. And I think a lot of that's a lot of opportunity out there for people even today when they're locked down a bit in terms of not being able to leave the country, mm. getting out on the road and, yes, pick a destination that you know there might be an interesting end point, but stay observant all the way there. Don't just sort of shut your eyes and drive. Well, you shouldn't do that anyway, but don't close your mind off to what's possible on the journey because along the journey is where you find some of the most interesting things. Mm. And I think um, if you're going to shoot from the car, then you possibly need to adapt your technique a little bit. I mean, mm. I, I, you know, shooting with the cameras I use, I like using a tripod most of the time because, you know, you're spending the money to get all those pixels. You want to make sure that they're sharp. But if you're in a car and you get to a location, you've got to, you know, open up a tripod and close it down all the time. And sometimes that can you know, cloud your vision or uh, change your uh, approach and you might choose, ah, oh, it's not worth getting the tripod out, let's keep on driving. Mm. Then you could also be travelling with someone like David Oliver who says, you know, why would you use a tripod anyway? Mm. Um, but I, I think, though, that I've sort of got a balance these days in that I'll use a telephoto where normally I would want to use a tripod, mm. but if I just push the ISO up a little bit and make sure I've got a fast shutter speed of a thousandth or a two thousandth of a second, I can get a tack sharp photograph. Mm. And yes, the ISO might be a little bit higher, but at least I've got a photograph. Whereas if I was shooting from a tripod, I might be lazy or disinclined and so I don't end up with a photo at all. So I think you know, it, it can be quite fun to change the way you shoot as well, just mm. to, to add a little bit of enjoyment to the process. Well, that's right. And if your name's Christian Fletcher, you've got one of those little door pillows as well to 
put your uh, cine saddle. Put your yeah. Is that is that what it's called? The cine saddle. Well, that's one of the things you can use. It's designed for sitting video cameras on to keep them steady and flat and whatever. But, but I guess the point is, look, these are these are challenging times at the moment. But it's not going to go on forever. But you know, there, there are still opportunities to um, to travel and get some great shots. Yeah, I mean, look, we. Two years ago, we were on our road trip to the US and we were in in that sort of west side of USA during quite rare blizzards and there were some of the towns, I mean, they get a lot of snow and storms over there, but some of these towns were getting snow they hadn't had in 10 or 15 years. And we were driving into the Grand Canyon quite late in the day. We'd been sort of delayed because of heavy weather and we're talking, you know, blizzard type conditions, heavy snow. And we're driving up into Grand Canyon and into a into pelting, you know, mm. sleet. And I remembered just picking up the camera with a twenty four seventy on it. You couldn't open the window; it would have frozen everyone in the back. And just shooting through the glass as we're going past and panning, uh, trying to capture, slow down the movement of the snow, and shooting at a high enough shutter speed to freeze the trees and the and the, and the background information. But these black and white mono heavily textured because of the sleet images were some of my favourite images of the trip and yet I would never have set out to do that. It was just curiosity. Mm. It was, like Pete said, be involved in the experience, you know, be in that mm. moment um, and, and seeing what you can do. And I find some of the best learning happens in these situations where mm. it's not what you expected or you're not prepared for it. Suddenly you try to make use of it and you come up with some new ideas. Mm. What do you reckon, Pete? I was just sitting back and listening to Tony. It was lovely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, you've you've done stuff in pretty much every corner of the world, Peter. What would be some of the more strange uh, things you've learnt while you're on the road? Is that a too hard a question for you? Well, I, I mean, I, I I love road trips because you you're always looking at what might be around the corner, what might be around the corner, and you know, you and I will have those games where somebody's turned to find something decent to find <laughs> before sunset, and um, you know, it, it's, you've got to do it before sunset. That's right, and, and you know, I, I I guess there's you know, there's this if you're a, if you're a surfer, there's uh, the rip curl advertising. Um, campaign called the search and you know they, they have a ship and a couple of professional uh, good surfers will all jump on that ship and then they go out and they look for new waves and part of the enjoyment is looking and part of the enjoyment is surfing the most see these are most amazing waves and i think that's the same with the road trip whether you're doing it with your on yourself on your own with a couple of friends or on a photo tour mm. is that you've got these two aspects when you, you mentioned it before there is a destination but it is it is that trip of what's around the corner what's around the corner and yeah i, I know that when i go away a lot of people think oh you're always so enthusiastic and i think well what's there not to be enthusiastic about you know mm. Goodness knows what's going to be around the corner, and if you, it is, it is quite amazing. We we rarely miss, do we, in terms of getting a great shot somewhere, because you, as the light gets closer and closer to sunset, and then past dark, and no photos available, yeah. it is amazing how creative your brain can get, and we always seem to find something. Not necessarily the best photos, but they certainly make a part of the album and the experience. Well, well, again, you know, you think of the road trip, you might be going from a fantastic beach destination that you stayed the night at and ending up in a mountain or, you know, some beautiful hills or some location that everybody wants to get to. But along the way, you'll go through little country towns, you'll cross bridges, you'll go past the farmland, you'll go through forests. Um, you'll go through desert areas, whatever it is that you, wherever you are, and each of them has provides unique opportunity. 
And the other thing that I find fascinating is you can do that, you know, every year for six years in a row. Each time you go through certain areas, the weather's different and the light's different and you could have heavy cloud one day and i remember a couple of years ago pete we we couldn't get over the mountains from yellow uh, from yosemite to get over to um the other side of the sierra nevada and we're due to go across the top you know we're going to go north a little bit and and over to the other side and then down through to death valley but the snow came in it closed out the pass it closed out the next pass and we would have had to travel almost to canada just to get around the top so i think we decided we go down the bottom we ended up in a place a day early we had a couple of days, an extra day that we didn't expect. So we went and found that little desert road loop that a lot of the movies had used. And suddenly we found this location in this misty, overcast, heavy, sort of um, sleety type condition. Oh, the Alabama Hills, you mean? Yeah, yeah. and, and we, we find, you just told everybody, Pete. We said oh. we wouldn't tell everybody. <laughs> um, but we ended up staying there for a couple of days and it was a fantastic location. It had so much atmosphere and, and provided a whole different you know, experience that we hadn't planned for. And what um come in because he's got I, I have to say Carwin, I am mm. a little disappointed in that we've been going now for you know 30 minutes or so mm. Christian Fletcher is not here and mm. I've got this whole list of things that about Christian that I wanted to discuss and there hasn't been a segue to bring them in as yet. That's the problem. Well, it's, just, it, it, it's, it's, it's now, kind now, of... Now, for instance, maybe I need to take the lead here a little bit and Tony will back me up with, you know, one of the fun things about travelling is trying to find food. Now, when the ND5 <laughs> and the 90 Degrees 5 guys, when we all first started off, I think I was a vegetarian and that was it. Everybody was cool. But after, within four or five years... Suddenly we go in and Les has got particular dietary requirements. Mm. I've got particular dietary requirements. Tony had some. Michael Fletcher, he was fine. And Christian, well, Christian the vegetarian, um, it's amazing what he would eat, wasn't it, Tony? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm it, not sure how far we can go Is, 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 this, is this a little bit of payback, Pete? I'll come out and say it. I, I do remember that we were buying a hamburger somewhere <laughs> And Christian asked if you would put it on your credit card. And when you asked why, he said because he didn't want his wife to be going through the credit card statements and see that he'd been to McDonald's. Yeah. Good luck getting and that back to At least three weeks. Uh, look, I think, I think, you know, they are the things that make road trips worthwhile. If you go to a single destination, it can it can provide one type of experience but you know we are in a in a situation mm -hmm. at the moment where everybody has the opportunity to jump in the car and it doesn't have to be an expensive exercise sure you can go on road trips through amazing parts of the world in the past and hopefully in the future but right now you can jump in your car and travel anywhere and uh don't tony i, I don't know whether whether you can travel anywhere yeah well i mean what, what's, what's that place out to the west up northwest of you marble bar yeah, that's that's two and a half days. See, I can go anywhere. It'll take a few days to get there before well, I even leave the state. You just said it's okay and easy to get there, but I seem to remember Christian having a, mm. a really uh, serious health <laughs> scare up in Mar. Well, listen, I think that's a good point, Pete, you know, and this is the thing. Like, when you're on the road, why are you out there taking pictures? Now, some people just out there to get away from something or somebody. Um, maybe they're out there to, to share the experience with others and learn on the road. 
uh, part of a workshop. But mm. some of us I know like to use the opportunity to promote their work on social media. Mm. Is that what you're getting at, Peter? Mm. I, I, I was sort of getting that way. That's correct. So when we were up, this was on another ND5 trip that we did, so the, the classic road trip, and we just seen that beautiful thunderstorm cell and right. it, it photographed it. it wasn't that was out of where where were we going we that, that was out of port headland and on the way to pardue it was near pardue i think that's it that's it and i can remember you know it was on the on the the, the film that we did with uh, michael and yeah we're just watching it was sort of like being in a um cult in the coliseum and we're looking down and there's this thunderstorm uh, these willy willies going around around a big cloud there's lightning going down there are little bush fire brush fires happening underneath and it was the most fantastic um series yeah wonderful experience and you know when i guess yeah we were talking earlier about having a, a mm. once in a lifetime experience well I, i've seen on social media a lot of the people who live uh, in western australia northern territory and they're getting lots of um, experiences like that these days and they've got posting some amazing photos but for a city slicker like me stuck in sydney that was a life uh, a once in a lifetime experience and it was sensational and we all got good photos then didn't we Tony? We certainly did, and then we wandered around and drove around a bit further, and we came across a old abandoned mine. Is that what you're referring to? That's, well, that was that, that's right. So that was the next day, and uh, yeah. we hey, can we getting back into civilization later on that night, and then the following day we had a job to do out at one of the salt mines. I think it was, wasn't it? But that's during right. that day, there was that um, abandoned gold mine, and oh, you went in there with Christian, didn't you? We did, and there was this beautiful <laughs> light cutting through the you know open beams in the roof that had fallen through, and. Christian had this fantastic idea. He said, look, if I kick up the dust here a bit, uh, it's going to actually throw beams of light. And I said, that, that'll work. I, you know, because I'd oh. said, nice if we had just a big lick, wasn't he? He did a big kick and sand, a bit dust. And, oh, it was beautiful portrait. Yeah, one of my favourite portraits of Christian. And then the next day, a few things. Oh, on the way home, that's right, on the way out, Les had a few things to say. Oh, no, what did he have to say about that? Oh, he's well, he pointed about... out some signs that Christian and I had. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> well, I thought you actually got chased out of there by a bloke. Well, I wasn't going to talk about that because that was probably breaking the law. But oh. we didn't know that. We came in the back door. and we came, like, There's a big property and we came in from the back and as we were walking out, somebody had driven up and said, you're not allowed here. And we said, well, we couldn't find any signs. And they said they're at the front. And we realised we'd come in on a back road and just walked straight into it without even knowing. So anyway, we left. So we probably weren't breaking the law. We could plead ignorance. Uh, no, but I think it was what the guy said to Christian. The guy, as I understand, this is my memory anyway, Tone, so don't let, it get, yeah, <laughs> don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. No, you uh, embellish, mate. Go he for said, it. He said to Christian, he said, look, there's a lot of cyanide around here and, you know, you guys need to be careful. It can kill you. That's so right. That was in the back of Christian's mind. We drove back to so Port Hedlund. He, and I remember him asking Les as we were driving back in the car, all five of us, and he, he sort of sheepishly said to Les, would that be true? You know, And, of course, Les told him scientifically, yes, well, that there, there would be. So, so Fletch was kicking up cyanide. Well, that's that's kind of how it was how it was explained, that that's right. po quite possible there would be residue in that. So we get back and uh, Christian later in the evening was said he wasn't feeling 100%, so he might hit the sack. And, um, you know, we were having a quiet beer after dinner and working on and, our... Tone, we also had the local newspaper that was asking if we had any photographs um, of the storm that we'd photographed as yeah. well. Were they available? Yeah, so your memory's better than mine sometimes. <laughs> That's been my age. 
That's why anyway, the following day we had that job to do. and well, That was for the salt. And uh, Christian, unfortunately, got up in the morning and wasn't feeling 100%. So he decided he might be best to stay home just in case. Mm. And he really wasn't feeling very well, Carlin. You know, obviously, he said, you know, there could have been something in what that guide said about the the cyanide and the dust in the mines. And I must say, in all seriousness, if you are out there exploring these things, this is an absolute real danger. Yeah, don't go there and don't. <laughs> so be careful. But anyway, Christian decided he couldn't join us. And we were supposed to go out and do a shoot. And while we were out on this salt flat working, doing a sort of job for somebody, um, we, we wanted to get a photo of the five of us. Um, luckily enough, mm. having Michael and Christian as part of ND5 and having them as identical twins meant that we could actually do a couple of shots and Michael could double up as both him and Christian with a bit of Photoshop and layering. We uh, managed to get all five of us. But anyway, we is, were is there that true? for the day. We, we, we were gone pretty much all day out shooting and uh, we came back at four o'clock concerned, genuinely concerned that Christian, you know, wasn't well. Mm. He, he'd been in bed all day as far as we knew and, you know, we, we were worried for him. And uh, where did we find him, Pete? We found him by the pool, having a beer with his laptop, having just sent off his stitched photograph of the storm to the local newspaper so that they could run it before any of us. <laughs> okay, guys, look, um, Christian isn't here to defend himself, so I'm going to give oh, you... Um... Oh, he's not here. That's wonderful. That's what I'm saying. I've got a whole list of these things, Carl. I'm, I'm, We're I'm, not I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to give you one more crack because he can't defend himself. Peter, uh, Sir Peter Eastway, what is your most sizzling Christian Fletcher anecdote? Oh, dear. <laughs> well, I don't know whether I've got just a, uh, I mean, there, there, there We've are two got things time. I'd like to say, and we love Christian, and he, he, he does have a little bit of an ego problem because when Tony, me, and, oh, by the way, Christian used to do our uh, Caragini workshops, <laughs> we would turn up and there outside on the board was photo workshop presented by Christian Fletcher and, and then a little lettuce, friends. <laughs> so Tony and I made it to friends. And, you know, I, I guess Christian, having done a book on Caragini, was, you know, a legend and all that sort of stuff. So it was a great honour to be up there with him, wasn't it, Tony? It was. And, I mean, that, that happened after the sixth trip we did together, six years in a row. <laughs> so we kind of figured we'd gro we'd progress to being friends. So, But, but what I really wanted to do, Carwin, is mm. that I just wanted to make a public announcement, if I could. Yeah, sure, absolutely. I, over the years, I think Christian has disenfranchised himself with every major camera manufacturer around. In fact, I could probably go through them all, but I, I wouldn't want to do that. And I, I, all I would like to say is to those camera manufacturers is that Tony and I think your product is wonderful. We think that there is a place for all of the great cameras on the market, mm. and we would just like you to give us all a second chance because we really do love you. Yeah. <laughs> Poor old Fletch. All right, we're going to give you a, um, a go, Tony. You've got, uh, there you go, your turn. My sizzling Christian Fletcher anecdote. Oh, really? Yeah, go um, on. And, and, and after that, we're, uh, we're actually going to take a question from uh, a couple of our listeners on Instagram. Okay. okay. <clears throat> I, I, look, I, okay, here's mine. Is, um, I remember we were in Kununurra and we were shooting the North uh, East Project or North and East Project. We'd done East, which was Lord Howe Island, and we were doing the north section of that. And we'd come back from being out on the road all day in, in, in the wet season. So there was monsoons, there was lightning, it was rain. It was it was fantastic. We got some great shots. And we've come back and we're in our little house and um, 
Christian decided to have a little rest and he, he lay down on the bed and he fell asleep, but he left his laptop on his lap while mm. he was on the bed. Do you remember this, Pete? Because you're the one who did it. That's a, <laughs> that's a anyway, mistake, uh, he that. was in the middle of load. He put all his photos into Capture One and he'd loaded up these shots and he had some absolute crackers. There were some ball terrors in there. Anyway, Pete goes in and he moves all the files out of the folder that Christian had put them in and hid them in some ob, you know, obscure folder somewhere on the laptop that you couldn't find <laughs> and just left it there and we walked away. And Christian ended up waking up. I think we got it on video or on or phone video or something. And he's looking and he went ballistic. Not because he was blaming us. He thought he'd stuffed up and deleted all his files. <laughs> and I'll never forget that because it took a while for him. We were pissing ourselves laughing and he still didn't think that we'd done anything. So why would we do that? So that, that was one of my absolute favourites. He, he had posted that wonderful photo of me having a little ziz prior to that on social media so it was retribution of it was a bit of payback it was a bit of payback can i just can i just say though that um make no mistake and i want to talk about how much peter and i truly respect christian mm. and love him for what he does but i just don't think i can <laughs> okay, we've we've got a couple of uh, questions here, guys. We um, did a thing on our Instagram last night, just asking if anybody had questions uh, for you fellas. So, um, first one is from hobby forward slash passion to a business. What are some of the tricks? If it's business, I'd go to Pete first. <laughs> <laughs> That's who I was looking Look, at. There, but... there are there are people in Australia who are making money out of photography and they're doing quite well. I mean, the days of when Tony and I sort of started <laughs> off where you had a studio and, um, you know, people came to you and all of that. Well, I mean, that still happens to some extent, but not, not very much. Whereas I, I know a number of photographers, for instance, have, you know, they don't just do photography. They'll put a drone up in the air and they'll do, do video and stills and, you know, they'll do time lapse that they'll morph into different ways i mean murray fredericks is an example you know i was talking to him for doing an interview for better photography not so long ago and mm. when i said to you asked him to describe himself i mean he doesn't just take still photos he does video direction he, he does, does everything you know, time lapse he does all sorts of stuff yeah. and i think that it's a matter of having a business mind about it mm. there's always going to be somewhere someone out in the market who will do the same job you want to do for nothing mm. and you've got to let them because there's no point going after those jobs. So my suggestion is you do need a business plan. You need to have an understanding of what the market is like. Mm. That means you might spend one or two years earning nothing, but just getting experience and learning how you can fit into the marketplace that's there. And then if you dedicate it and you push it, yeah, there's there's a world for you there. Mm. But you know, I, I used to do workshops on business planning for photographers. And um, out of every 100 people that came along, I reckon 15 would actually go back and do a business plan. Mm. The other 85 would come along two or three years later when I repeated the uh, presentation mm. and start again because so few people make a business plan. If you don't have a plan, you ain't going to win. And that's uh, it's interesting you say that too because we know anecdotally most SMEs, if you like, don't even have a business plan. So uh, people want to be professional with their photography, but you, you actually have to be professional. You actually have to treat it like a business. See, one of the, you're exactly right, Carl. And I mean, one of the classic um, comments, you know, people say, oh, I shot a wedding for $500. Mm. Now, you think about it and you say, well, $500, that, that's a, a reasonable amount of money. You can do a lot with $500. Mm. But then you think about it and you say, all right, well, if I was, if I were really good mm. and I could shoot 50 weddings a year, and there are a lot of our top Australian photographers who might shoot, you know, 20 or 30 if they're lucky these days. Mm. But let's say you can do 50. 50 times, you know, 500 bucks is $25,000 a year. Mm. 
that you know, take out your expenses. You you need to have more than just that idea of doing one job. You know, getting five hundred dollars might be wonderful for somebody who's got a job and is being paid an hourly rate. They think five hundred dollars is great, mm. but that's not how a business person can afford to think. Yeah, I think you know what's important with when when you talk about photography. I think it's important. Tony, to can understand. we just get you to speak up, mate? It sounds like you're sure, in the mate. in the dunny <clears> there. How's that? Is that better? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I think it's important that you have to be clear in your mind and honest with yourself. What, where does photography fit? Is it an outlet? Is it an escape? Is it a hobby? Is it, you know, creative um, opportunities for you to balance out the fact that you might, you know, your real job's a boring accountant or something like that? <laughs> um, but, but what are you doing it for? Or are you doing it to make a living? And I'm, you know, I, it took me a long time to understand that I needed to be more serious about the business side. Mm. Um, because I was always enamoured and, you know, I'm a romantic at heart. I love the creativity. I love the imagination. I love trying new things. Mm. But somebody told me a long time ago, Kiwi friend, you know, find one thing you're good at in photography and just keep going at it and make money at it and, and, and build yourself a platform and secure your future and then go out and have fun. And, of course, I didn't listen, so I had to do it backwards. But I think that's where you've got to be clear in your mind. If, if it's just for fun and mm. coming away from the WAPF, you know, which is amateur, most of them are amateurs or enthusiasts, very, very talented photographers. Mm. But they do it for fun. Mm. They go out to have fun and get better at it and it's their creative outlet. And there's doctors and lawyers and accountants and bus drivers and there's all sorts of people involved. Mm. Um, but they share a common joy. I think where I feel blessed is my joy and passion for photography hasn't waned. Mm. Partly because I keep evolving and changing what I do, mm. I know that I look at people for inspiration, like like Pete, Christian. That's what's kept their success, kept them successful, is they still enjoy the photography. Mm. Peter's a very successful business person, as is Christian, mm. but they still love photography. And you see people who come into the business of photography, and they last for a while, and they get bored, or they, um, you know, they all automate everything and put people in there. Mm. And I've seen people who've set up beautiful businesses and then they've lost it in the end because they teach other people to do the work for them, the photography, and those people go off and start their own businesses. And these people don't really love photography, so they go off and do another topic. Can, can I just ask you, though, and Pete uh, mentioned this before, like there's always, you know, somebody that will undercut you. Um, and if you're in the position of, uh, and, you know, I guess what you're talking about um, uh, too, Tony, it's, you know, it sort of becomes a bit formulaic. Um, but if you've got somebody undercutting you and, um, you know, you, you're sort of charging, you know, 500 bucks to do a wedding and, you know, you end up at the end of the financial year with, with two-thirds of five-eighths, you know, when do you get to the point where you just go, you know, roses are red, violets are blue, where's the fucking revenue? Like, you've just you've got to get some revenue, don't you? Yeah, I, I think Peter said it before, he, you know. There's things that worked 30 years ago that didn't work 15 years ago and there's things that worked 10 years ago that don't work today. you mm. you got to be smart, you know. There's two parts to it. There's the ability to see, to actually read light, to work with people, to pose, to mm. um, compose, all of those sort of mechanics of photography. And then there's the business. And mm. if what you're trying to run as a business in photography isn't relevant anymore, mm. then stop flogging a dead horse. Mm. If you just like taking pictures, then get another job and keep taking pictures. Mm. But if you want to make money at it, you've got to look at the market. I mean, Pete's are not only is he one of the world's best photographers in mm. terms of landscape and wildlife, mm. Peter's also uh, a CPA. He's an accountant. He knows what he's talking about when it comes to business. Pete, could I, could I ask you this? It, it, you know, um, it, it is my opinion that... To be a small business person, 
in photography is actually tougher than, say, being a plumber or electrician. What do you reckon? 100%, yeah, I'd agree. I, I think um, that the, if you want to get make some money out of photography, do it as a part-time or do it as part of what you do. If you've got an existing job doing IT or whatever it is, see if you can pair that back to, you know, three or four days a week and just spend one or two days because the majority of photographers today who call themselves professionals do have another occupation. I mean, when I started off, yes, I was qualified as an accountant. I worked as a publisher, as an editor, and I did photography. And I, I felt a little bit outside when I would go along to the AIPP meetings and I'd meet other photographers like Tony, etc. there, and all they did was photography and I did all these other things and I, I felt like the unusual bloke. Um, probably you'd say I'm unusual anyway and that's <laughs> okay. But these days I think it's more, it's, it's unusual to only be a photographer. So someone like Christian mm. is really quite rare mm. in that he just makes his money from selling photos and mm. that that's a wonderful way to to run your business and i, I gave christian a hard time earlier on because i'm i'm very jealous of the fact that he does that um i'm not 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 that jealous i'm happy with what i do too but it's quite but amazing it, really isn't it? I, I do do think that that you know so so be comfortable in doing more than one thing um if you only want to be a photographer the passion you've got for it now might not be the same because you've also got to do yeah you know, you've got to get, go and do quotes and you've got to go and do the processing you've got to get prints made up and you know there are a whole lot of stuff that is just a business and it doesn't matter whether you're a butcher a baker or a candlestick maker it's just the business side and photography is no different well it's, it's interesting you bring uh fletch's uh gallery into it because like we we know off the record the off the record fletch is um you know that's a uh, you know, people sort of go, oh, okay, well, Christian Fletcher, he's got a very, very successful gallery. In, in fact, I was talking to somebody about galleries in Australia the other day, completely unrelated, and I just, I actually couldn't think of another gallery that's actually probably as successful as his um, in Australia at the moment. But we know, we know off the field, Fletch works that thing 24 hours. Like it is, his gallery is a lifestyle. He's not out there leading, leading some sort of glamorous life. Um, you know, it is a 24-hour thing, isn't it? Did he tell you this and you believed him? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're right. You're that right. might have been Look, BS. I, I will say, I think I think you have. there are a couple of other people who have done it well as well. I mean, mm. Eugene Tan at uh, Aquabumps in Bondi, I think, would argue that you could argue he's done quite well as well. He's done very well. But, again, yeah. he's, you know, he's up before dawn taking photos. Yes. I mean, he lives it. it. Yeah, you know, that that's right. But it doesn't. Lot, what's his succession plan? Like, I'd like that lifestyle, but they don't necessarily see the whole lifestyle. But what, and look, if you want that, I'm not trying to discourage anyone. Go mm. for it, but just be realised what you're asking for. Mm. Yeah, I think you've got to be to, to do what these guys do. You've got to not just be in love with the photography. You've got to be in love with the business of photography, particularly the area of business that you're in. And you know, Eugene and Christian, particularly, you know, you take Eugene who started out shooting every day and. Mm. I think he still does. That's a hell of a commitment, hell of a commitment to go but, and shoot a picture every day. Well, we, we asked him, you know, because the obvious thing with um, with uh, with Eugene, this is with respect, mate, we, we love your stuff, but there doesn't really um, appear to be a succession plan. And when we asked him about that, he just sort of said, oh, look, can you, you know, can you see the photo here of my kids? Um, so that's, you know, he's a very, he's got a very successful business, but he works very, very hard as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I've been asked a few times, you know, what on, you know, when will I, when would I stop? I mean, apart from the fact right now, I don't know if I could, but I don't think I'll ever retire from what I'm doing because I'm blessed. 
the business suck, sucks. I hate business. I, I'm not a big fan of business, and some people love business, so I feel jealous of that that passion they have for the business. But I love photography, and I love people. I love teaching and sharing, inspiring. So I know that till the day you know I'm I'm six feet under, I will keep doing to whatever extent I can, taking pictures, sharing the ideas with people, helping them uh, find the joy of photography. Because what I do now, my challenge is just to make sure I can use that passion in a way that's sustainable mm. and can make a living at it, you know, mm. support my future and my, my family's future. All right, well, let's uh, let's take it back to photography. Uh, this is from the Instagram again. And uh, a question from, uh, and I'm, I'm probably going to completely stuff this up, Philip, so I uh, apologise. But this is from Philip Scrimgeour. And uh, he commented, who is your favourite Australian photographer from the past, Peter? I yeah I don't have favourite photographers because um, I have favourite photographs or photographs that have been inspirational. Um, but to have actually just a photographer as a favourite, I, I, yeah, it's like you know where's what's your favourite sock colour or what's the favourite country etc. Mm. And it's always the next sock that I buy or the next country I go to. But I suppose one of the photographers I've mm. taken great interest in is Frank Hurley. And the reason I like Frank, uh, Frank did a lot of photographs in Antarctica. So he was um, the, guy, the photographer on the Shackleton um, voyage, the, the ill-fated uh, one where the, the ship got, got sunk and they took him ages to get back. Um, but then he also went over and he worked um, in uh, Europe during the war and he photographed um, yeah, the, the planes and the, the, the trenches and the, the bombs and all that sort of stuff. And what he did was he used multiple exposures. So because he was shooting with plate film, my, my belief is that, you know, it was uh, now, was it orthochromatic, um, panchromatic? It must have been orthochromatic. That's right, orthochromatic film. So basically the plates that he used weren't very blue light sensitive. And so when you took a photograph and there was a sky, the sky was completely white. And, as photographers, we prefer to have a darker sky or some tone in it. So he would drop another mm. cloud in, another sky in, just to complete the photograph. And I, I don't think he was doing it to misrepresent. I think what he was doing was to better represent what he could see with the eye, but the, the cameras couldn't see. Mm. Similarly, when he was over in um, shooting the war, there's a fantastic uh, two-metre print, which is six or seven different exposures all made onto one sheet of paper, shows the planes coming in, the bombs going off, the diggers in the trenches. And he got into trouble with that, with the authorities, mm. because the authorities said, that's not a single photograph. That's not real. That's something else. Uh. And yet the authorities would have artists, they'd have writers, they'd have journalists. Everybody could create things up in their mind, mm. but a photographer had a different set of rules to abide by. Similarly, you go and look at, you know, watching David Attenborough the other night and some of the beautiful images that he's got. Well, Tony, you give me a hard time of 200% colour saturation, but I reckon <laughs> two-thirds of that show had colour saturation blown out of the park to make the colours look wonderful and everything like that. So there's this. So I, when I look at Frank, I look at someone who had to struggle with people out there believing they understood something about photography and perhaps didn't have enough of an understanding to critique it properly. Interesting. What about yourself, uh, Tony? Yeah, look, in all fairness, I probably can't... I mean, there's there's photographers I've obviously been inspired to that have shaped, my, my, shaped the way I do things. And, I mean, we're speaking to one of them here, you know, and I'm not trying to blow smoke up his ass because mm. I just wouldn't, but... 
you know, the people that I've spent time with because, and I've spent time with them because they inspire me and I continue to spend time with them because they, they inspire me. So there's a current crop of photographers like that that I, I look at. Each of them provides something. Uh, if I go back in time, there's people like Richard Waldendorp who at the age of 92 or 3 is producing his, you know, 30th or 28th book or something and, you know, still on current projects. So, and, and being one, you know, the fathers of aerial photography in the country, sort of inspired me for obvious reasons Mm. but to be honest if we're talking if the question is based around you know who would someone go and look at to get the sort of inspirations that i have achieved apart from the obvious ones and the people i hang out with a lot of it's is not necessarily photography and i in in the early days i i remember when i was trying to advertise weddings and i looked through all the wedding magazines and i'd see all the wedding ads and you try to think how can i you know i'm looking for some ideas why would i look what other people are doing. In the end, I started getting my inspiration from my advertising from surfing magazines because it was more my style. It reflected me. So I now think most of my inspiration outside of the obvious comes outside of photography. You know, people like, um, and, and I've been well on record for saying I like this person's art, and that's Jeffrey Smart for composition, William Turner for colours, another artist. There's a guy called Vladimir Kush. Pete would be familiar with. We've seen his work in the States. He's a Russian um, artist who does almost like Roald Dahl and people like that, very weird and quirky ways of thinking. And I just like people who are thinking in different ways, pushing the boundaries of reality. There's an artist in Australia called Johnny Romeo who's really brash, pop culture, poppy art, um, and they're not photographers, but they they have a much bigger influence on my styling and my mm-hmm. future thinking than, than than any photographers. But certainly I have the utmost respect for so many photographers who've paved the way. I mean, there's someone I consider an unsung legend is a Richard Bennett Mm. who, you know, Pete would know more than me, probably 30, 40 years of photographing the Sydney to Hobart from a plane flying down below the level of the waves to get shots. I never forget this image of the mast of a ship in a storm and all you can see is the mast behind a wave and he's shooting from a plane an open door, mm-hmm. he has to be below the height of that wave. Mm. He's gone into a trough. So that's what inspires me, people like that. Mm. Mm. Oh, that's very, yeah, um, that's very that's interesting. A, that's a good point of view, mm. Tonio. What what other photographers should people look at um, in terms of Australia? I mean, you know, you've, you've got Dombrovskis, you've got yeah. Lake Strakarnas um, as being wildlife uh, photographers. Don't go past Ken Duncan. You know, Ken's that's got a right. lot of there peter lick i mean what you can learn from these guys is the classic art of landscape photography um and how you know richard waldendorp as you said as well and they've 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 come from the days of film where that was their starting point i think we've probably got a little bit of time before we're going to have enough books out there that show where say from the year 2000 forwards what has been happening there because we've still got the runoff of the people who are doing the straight captures mm. but th- there's this whole new world of you know I-, I was just looking on instagram before there's a photo by jackie rankin and she's doing these you know blurred multiple exposures which are very you know like uh, turner uh, turners and constables etc they've just got a real feeling to them mm. um and they're photographs and mm. so, I, mean, I think i think the time you know the jury is out and so your advice of looking outside of photography, mm. um, I think is yeah, it's, it's it's a that's that's the best source of inspiration. Do you know it, it was I was having a chat with um, somebody the other day, and I I found myself saying everything has been done in landscape photography. <laughs> yeah. Just actually, I think you said that 
too, Pete. Do you still sort of yeah, feel that, that way? I was reading um, Susan Sontag on photography. So Susan Sontag is a, uh, well, was, she's deceased, but she um, was a, a great mm. uh, commentator on photography. And in her book on photography, she was basically saying everything that we do from now on is derivative of something someone has already done. Now, I've paraphrased that probably poorly as well, but that's my takeaway from it is that there's always, no matter what you do and you think it's new and original, some other bug has been there before you. <laughs> okay, guys, uh, look, we've got, um, you know, two major, major heavyweight uh, photographers in Australia. I, I'm going to ask you this question, guys, okay? Where is the craft going to be in 10 years' time? And uh, the second part of the question is, We've, we're involved in this, uh, this, this megapixel war. I mean, it's just ridiculous. We've got uh, my Panasonic S1R has 187 megapixels. The um, Phase no, 1 IQ4, doesn't. well, it does with pixel shift technology. The IQ4 has 140, is that right? Or 150. 150. Yeah. Um, you know, how many megapixel cameras are we going to have in 10 years' time? And where's the craft going to be in 10 years? Go. Well, it's funny you talk about big cameras like that because I'm, you know, I've got to say, um, mm. If you look at the other end of the spectrum, take a look at the latest iPhone. I mean, yeah, right. Yeah. It, it, to me, it's all about what are you doing with the pictures, mm. and and you know, there's not you can't take big, big, big cameras, big medium format cameras, and in in everywhere you want to go, you can't take them everywhere you want to get to. Mm. Uh, also, hardware, software, um, hard drives, storage space, all of these things. It's it's a it's mm. a system. And I think people sometimes forget that. They go looking for the biggest and the best or whatever, but they forget the whole thing is a system. Mm. It's like having a fantastic amplifier and putting a $5 speaker on it. It's going to sound like crap. It doesn't matter if the amplifier costs you 40000 Yeah, it's your weakest link, isn't it? It's your weakest link. So, mm. you know, what do you, if you're only ever producing, you know, there's Michael Kenner does his beautiful black and white um, animal pictures mm. and, or, or just, you know, landscapes. And I think he only does them as 10.8s and 11.14s, doesn't he, Pete? Yes, they're only small size prints, yeah. So why would he even chase a 200 megapixel camera or a 300 megapixel camera? You don't need to. But do you Some reckon... people like noise. They like the idea of grain and a textual feel to their pictures, so they don't need to get rid of the noise. So, do you, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Do, do you think that the, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the amount of, the, you know, the megapixels are mo maybe becoming irrelevant? Pete? I... Uh, yes, yes, I think they are. I think they already are irrelevant. I don't think you need more than 50 megapixels, even though I've got a 150 megapixel sensor and I love using it. Um, if you're going to make big prints, it makes a difference. But for the majority of people, we've got more than enough pixels. What I think um, is interesting is that, so I, I, sh I shoot with the Phase 1 IQ 4 at 150 megapixels. I'm using Schneider and Rodenstock glass. And when I enlarge the image up, uh, look at it in um, Capture One, whatever it is, at 100%. Mm. The image is just as sharp as my eyes could see it. It's beautiful. Mm. Then I go to my little Fuji, and I've got an XT3 at the moment, um, and I put it on my 200mm or the 816, which I have for it, and I, it's only 24 mega, well, 26 megapixels, and I enlarge that up to 100%, but it's as sharp as it can be. Mm. And, you know, and that's what I love. So to me, the number of pixels isn't necessarily so important as the glass that I'm putting in the front because, you know, I enlarge up an iPhone photograph. Oh, you know, it looks fantastic on the iPhone screen, don't get me wrong, mm. but I enlarge it up and, oh, it's not it's not in the same level. So they open up the Fuji files in Lightroom, for instance, mm. bing, 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 up to 100%. 
they look good. Phase one files and capture one up to 100%, they look great. You know, I'm, I'm happy. And I, so I don't think that the number of pixels is so important. But for me, it's mm. just having that, that, that absolute sharpness so that when I am at 100%, that what I've got is tack tack. And that, that's what that, that I think we're there. I mean, all you've got to do is spend the money to buy the lenses. And, of course, a lot of people underestimate the value. It's not just the number of pixels, but with these larger sensors, et cetera, we get um, cleaner noise um, handling. We get greater dynamic range, which allows for, you know, much richer colour experience in terms of our images. And I know that, you know, there's some images I'm doing on a current project which involve colour and the colours that I can get, and it's not about saturation sliders, and I just want to debunk the myth that Peter Eastway pushes <laughs> saturation because he doesn't. I don't know where that that started. I think Christian started that bloody rumour, but he certainly doesn't go beyond above and beyond. He has other ways of, you know, enhancing and amplifying the impact of colour, I think is the way I would how, how do you do it, Pete? You desaturate around your centre of interest, don't you? Uh, well, if you send me $2,000 in crisp, unmarked $100 bills, I'll let you know the secret. Yeah, okay. I, I, I've been sworn to secrecy. I had to sign an NBA. <laughs> um, but, look, I think coming back to what cameras, what sizes and all of that, understanding that it's not just about the number of pixels or the size of the image, it's the quality of the, the finish and what you're going to do with it. And as Pete said, if it's staying on a phone, you can get away with the, you know, some of the latest iPhones and smartphones. But if you're going to print it, which I think all photographers should ultimately aim to do for longevity, is if you're going to print, then you will be found out at depending on the sizes you go to. Mm. And if we step back a little bit into, you know, the business of photography and inspiration, it's to me the two words that no matter where I go, no matter what I talk about, I have to introduce are purpose and passion. Mm. If you have passion for what you're doing and if there's a purpose, and sometimes the purpose is purely to explore or be or, or to to you know um, feed your curiosity. But for me it's about producing bigger prints and that to, to fulfill that purpose, I need certain types of equipment. Of yeah. I need certain levels of skill. Mm. I need certain types of software. So that's where I decide what I need and what I don't need. But I do hear people saying, oh, such and such said I should get this. And I'll say, well, what do you want to do with your pictures? Oh, I don't know. Well, then why do you need that? You don't need that. Mm. I remember years ago talking to an IT expert about my computers and I said, what computer should I get? And he said, well, what do you want to do with it? And I said, well, I don't know yet, but what computer should I get? And he said, well, until you know what you're doing with it, you don't need the fastest, greatest, latest if you're mm. only going to do emails on it. Mm, mm. So but figure out what you're doing with your photography. Images are the expression point. of that purpose and passion. The mechanics, the tools, the cameras, the software, the computers, they're just the means to an end. That's right. And it's um, th that is quite interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm a Canon 5D Mark II shooter at heart. Um, which is <laughs> uh, been and always will be 21 megapixels, and that's just you know it's just the best camera in the world. What can I say? <laughs> uh, okay, uh, let's go forward 10 years, uh, Peter Reesway. What's what's the craft going to look like? Well, I think that there, it's interesting. There's all sorts of um, apps and artificial intelligence, etc. I mean, you know, Photoshop's just announced that you can drop in skies um, with their new version of Photoshop coming up. Uh, Luminar has already done that. Um, so, you know, there are um, now, I'm trying to think, I think, thing called Shape that Nick Miladonis was, um, we've got a review on that in the December issue of Better Photography. It's a little app that basically mm. um, does uh, a little bit of clarity and highlighting and contrast for you automatically. And uh, it, there are all these things which are enabling us to create photographs that are really quite brilliant and sparkling and wonderful, and yet 
there's an element of them all looking the same. Mm. And so that's, I think, a few people who've come out of the world of film have said the big disappointment of digital is that everybody followed the same leaders. Mm. And so hopefully over the next 10 years, we're going to find that people will, I I think we're coming to a point, I mean, I look at the photo competitions that I judge, etc. There is no doubt in my mind that the standard of photograph, the average standard of photograph that's entered has increased dramatically over the last 10 years. I mean, I I would suggest that maybe 80% of photographers who entered 10 years ago, you'd look at the photographs and it would be really hard to give them a bronze award. Whereas today, you know, know, the vast majority are, you know, bronze. I think we had nearly 40% that got silver in the last better photography competition and Mm. they were worth it. Yeah, Tony was one of the judges. I hope he backs me up, but I, I feel that they were worth it. The standard was great. So I think that the standard of photography is certainly going to get better and better in terms of sharpness, exposure, etc., like that. But then it's just going to be the small group at the top, the people who, you know, like like, like the people who listen to like-minded, the people who are passionate, mm. and it's up to us to take it to the next level. Mm. And that's mm. going to rely not on technology but on ideas. All right, I'm going to ask you this, okay. Can I just, sorry, Colin, can I just jump in on top of Pete there that, um, you know, when we talk about what's coming up in 10 years and he finishes with the, with ideas, and I just, to me, that's where it's going, that it's always been about the expression of ideas and new ways to express ideas. For me, over the next 10 years, we're looking at a, a focus more on the aesthetics, the ability to see and understand the language, you know, and the aesthetics of imagery. Because as Pete's, we've got enough megapixels, the cl- cameras are clever, they, they expose, they almost do everything for us, but mm. it's still about choice. Mm. It's still about seeing the opportunity. Why is it that 10 people walk past a location and one takes a photo and everyone else goes, where was that? Mm. It's because they could see something that everybody else missed. Jonathan Swift uh, was quoted as saying that the art, um, you know, a vision is the art of seeing what is invisible to others, what, what everybody else can't see. Mm. I don't think that'll ever change because mm. it doesn't matter how good the cameras are. It's just, you know, even on a workshop, I see people look at something, they say, I can't see it. There's nothing there. And then you take a picture and they go, my God, it was right in front of me, and I never saw it. But the, comp- I, I mean, the composition is is, hu- is hugely important. But just um, you know, uh, just going back to what Pete said about um, you know, the standard of entry in you know the the latest round of photography competitions of which you were, were a judge too, Tony. Um, you know, we've got the situation now where cameras are so good. You, you know, you've got like sixteen million steps of ex- you know stops of exposure each way, and you can do all sorts of things with the highlights and shadows and that sort of stuff. Do you think maybe the reason we're seeing a uh, an increase in quality is um, you know not only uh, you know people are more focused on the composition rather than the actual um, the mechanical side of the shot? Do you think that's you know the cameras being so powerful? Do you reckon that's helping? I'm not just talking about composition, though. I, I think composition is a, is a is a design rule or, or an element of design, but I'm talking about something deeper than that. I'm mm. talking about an aesthetic. Um, how do you put in layers of emotion? You know, I've, I've talked in the past about you look at a picture of a couple and you say they're in love. Well, which part of that image is the love? Is it the composition that gives it the love? Is it the is it the color? There's there's a whole science around emotion and color. There's a whole science around archetypal symbology. Mm. Looking at, you know, that's why aerials are so fascinating for a lot of people because it's this these colour palettes that are triggering emotional responses. There are design and graphical elements that trigger um, inherent arch- archetypal symbolisms, crosses, crucifix, you know, tree patterns, all of this stuff. And understanding that 
That's where people will start to get better and better at because composition, you can follow basic rules. We all sort of got to the point where we know that, you know, if something's too close to the edge or it's out of balance or, you know, get the tone mapping right. But there's more to it than that, and I think people are starting to understand that. Can, can I ask you though? You look at um, you look at somebody like uh, Christian Fletcher, for example, um, and you know, once he photographs it, you you say to yourself, "I could I could have done that. I could have gone out and, and taken that shot." So you might go and give it a go, but it's not going to look like one of Fletcher's shots. Well, I can like, tell you, I stood next to you. Pete. You go first. You know, but I guess I mean the point I'm saying is. How does you know? I guess you know you've you've got all these um, compositional rules and all of these other sort of aspects that go towards making a shot. But how does someone like Christian Fletcher? And we are going to you know pump his tires up a little bit. But but how does he do it? Where you you can see one of his shots, and I can see one of his shots. Um, you know, a mile away and go. That's a Christian Fletcher photo. But how does how does he do it? Like how do the how do the heavyweights of photography actually do it? Well, let's ask one, Pete. Well, I, I mean, I think it comes down to, you know, going, going back to the other question as well, and the, the answer is the same. It's education. Um, we've all been, we're, we're much better educated. I mean, social media, for all its faults, having Instagram, Facebook, having websites has meant that as a photographer, we can experience a far greater range of different approaches to photography. Mm -hmm. And because we're humans, we look at things and we like some and we don't like others. And as we immerse ourselves in this educate, in our visual education, it means that we, you know, that flows through into the work that we do. The difference possibly between someone like Christian and someone who enters in one of our photo competitions is Christian's been doing it for the past 20, 30 years. So he's got more education. Mm. That old thing about, you know, it takes you 10,000 hours to become an expert. It probably takes you 100,000 hours to become a guru or whatever. So mm, mm. Uh, Christian's probably got a long way to go. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> so, But, yeah, that, that that's, I guess, the advantage of going forwards um, and what's going to happen in the next 10 years is that so many more people have had the opportunity to educate themselves about photography, about visual communication mm. and um you know I, th I think that's the benefit that we've all got uh tony just um on your aerial stuff because a lot of people say um you know they love the the abstract uh, nature of your work um and and again you know tony hewitt's aerial stuff you can tell I, i've walked into people's offices before and just looked up at the wall and you know i haven't seen a signature uh, or anything like that and I, I you're looking at the wall and you just go oh, that's a you know it's a tony hewitt photo so how do you, how do you know I, I don't know like how does how does your compositional mind work when you're up in a plane? Like what happens? Do you you know do do you, do you point the camera out the window and all of a sudden a little thing goes off in your head going oh okay that's you know that looks like something I'd want to take a photo of like what you know normal people don't have that. How do you do it? I, I think it comes back to what I said before that going forward the thing that's going to be continuously more valued is the expression of an idea or, or expression of a way of seeing things. And each of us have unique ways of seeing things. Mm. I, I, I truly feel it gets undervalued too much. It's not about the mechanics. So I come from a background, you know, through school where I was very good at mathematics. I love geometry. I love, I love things that are organised, which sounds strange, and Peter's probably laughing his head off at the moment because while I'm, I feel very disorganised, when it comes to images, I'm very pedantic about making sure you know, verticals are vertical and horizontals are horizontal unless I deliberately don't want them to be. And so my compositions, the beauty of aerial that I love the most is there's no true north. I can impose 
um, perspective. I can impose what is up and down. I can fool the eye by finding a line and placing it at a hor- in a horizontal composition so that people feel like it's a horizon and it's not. And that would then trick them into seeing other symbols and shapes as something other than what they are. Mm. And I like that way of flipping the way we see things. Mm. So perspective and shifting perspective mm. is what drives me. Now, when I talk about life in general and in some of my motivational work and that, I talk about shifting perspective to gain different understanding. If you mm. look at a problem in life or business or anything and you go and look at it from someone else's point of view, you gain a different understanding. But that rounds out your opinions. That's that's and, that's very I, I'm sorry, I'm going to cut you off there. That's that's very easy to say is to um, you know shift your perspective. But I've seen other people try and copy your aerial staff because they're not coming they, they, if you try to emulate a photographer by looking at the mechanics Mm. Or, or drawing a set of basic, you know, l- drawing rules, mm. that'll get you so far. But you truly need to fall in love with something. Mm. Like I remember, I remember the day I was in a church photographing a wedding. It was probably wedding number seven hundred and eighty-two or something. <laughs> and I was looking through the lens at this bride on the on the on the stage, and I swear to you, she was glowing. Now there was no light on her specifically different, but there was a glow around this girl, and she was one of the most in love brides I can remember ever photographing. And I walked out of that church and I, I remember saying to somebody, I have just seen what they mean by a glowing bride, mm. literally. And I swear to you, it was in the picture. Now, mm. I know people who shoot weddings and hate them. Mm. And I stopped weddings because I got to the point where I just wasn't enjoying them anymore after nearly a thousand. Mm. If you don't f- love children, if you can't honestly look at a two-year-old and fall in love with their their curiosity and their innocence and the naivety, naive way they face the world, mm. um, then you won't really capture the essence of children. Mm. And it's the same for landscape. It's the same for aerial. It's the same if you're talking abstract. One of my pet hates, and I, I hope I don't say this in a disrespectful way, but it's not aerial is not about holding the camera out the window and just photographing and thinking it's good because it's abstract. Mm. That's not what it's about. It's about finding something that you resonate with that reminds you of whether it's colour harmony, whether it's you know textual qualities, whether it's a, a shape that reminds, find something and put a deliberate frame around it and share that expression mm. or that vision with others. That's what you should be chasing, whether it's aerial or anything else. Mm. That's where Christian Fletcher walks out. And I've stood next to him, and anybody who says, you know, oh, I can shoot what Christian shoots, you you know. You can't. <laughs> you can't because I've stood, I've watched him go. I can't shoot Les Walkling. I don't think like Les Walkling. I don't, I can stand next to him, but I don't see like he does. I see his pictures and think, wow. Mm. And, you know, Pete has such a unique way of capturing things. For years, I couldn't understand why he bothered with ND filters and blurring clouds and things like that. Well, lately, I've been using a lot of ND filters, and now I'm just starting to get an inkling not of the technique, but of what he's trying to say. And I might be completely wrong, but it's making, it's about the ideas. It's truly about the ideas. The photography and the photograph or the image is a visual expression of an idea. Mm. It's someone's way of looking at things. And mm. if you just do it randomly, then you're just hoping that somebody's going to look at it and find something interesting. Do you, do you see the world that way too, Pete? Well, I, I, look, I, yes, I do. I, the thing that I think maybe we've missed in this conversation, and the question that you've asked, Carwin, is you know, how do we shoot? And for me, photography yes. is capture and post-production. You mm. can't have one with the other. And so when you walk up and you see a photo that you say, 
that's Christian Fletcher or that's Tony Hewitt. Mm. Part of the reason you can do that is because of the way they have processed the file. Now, I'm mm. going to use the term processed, and that makes it sound like mechanical. But that's let's use another term. Resolved. It's how they've interpreted the file. Mm. Yeah. And that, to me, is, I mean, it, going forwards, cameras are going to be so sophisticated that there's not going to be much of an edge that people get in terms of the technical quality of the file, the number of pixels, the dynamic range, all of that sort of stuff, because they're all so good. Mm. Um, it's going to be on your viewpoint, what you photograph, your angle, whatever it is, mm. and then how you take it to the next step so that it isn't the same as what comes out of the camera. Mm. I mean, it, it's interesting. I, I listen to a lot of wildlife photographers who basically say that they just want to capture things as the camera has done it. Well, that's going to be hard going forwards because the camera these days is doing so much to that file inside before you even see it on the LCD screen mm. that it's really a, it's, it's a non-argument to start with. But, mm. but I get it. For them, it's just the capture. And yet there are so many photos I've seen by really good photographers. And if they had just spent a few moments just to change the curve or just change a little bit of the highlight shadow, or just a little bit, suddenly their photograph goes from a great shot to a fantastic shot because they've they've put some of themselves into the photograph rather than sitting back and relying totally on an electromagnetic device to create the image for them. And I guess, look, look in saying that too, you, you talk to someone like um, Andy Apps, for example, who I don't think he even knows how to use Photoshop. Well, he does a bit now. Yeah, Andy and Les have uh, been talking, and I've helped uh, Andy as well. Andy knows far more than he gave away in that uh, interview we did. Ah. <laughs> but, but would you, wouldn't you agree? It's, it's it's a lot to do with, like, everybody speaks English, but the people there are certain people we love listening to because of the, their use of the language. And for me, there's certain photographers' work I love looking at because of their use of the, the photographic language, their use of the, you know, the ability to capture something visually and the way they present it. I've mm. seen the same thing by a hundred other photographers, but I like the way that person interprets yeah. what they see. Yeah. And and people sometimes, as soon as they hear, hear the word post-production, they're making an assumption that it's 57 steps to get to the end result. But when I'm talking post-production, it might be just one change to the curve or just one adjustment to colour balance that changes the photo from being average to being stunning. Mm. It's that final you know so it's not post-production isn't a lot but that one adjustment might take you several hours to work out you know i often sit in front of a photo for a long time and i think i know there's something in there i like the composition i like the light but the result that i've got is just the same as everybody else's and that's not necessarily bad mm. you know but it's not what i want to say and so i'm looking to you know how do, how do i make myself happy with that image i'm not actually trying to make it different from everybody else's i'm trying to make myself happy um which is a rather selfish way of looking at it and yeah at the moment fortunately when i'm happy they are a little bit different from everybody else's mm. that might change of course <laughs> i mean that's why without sounding like a little bit of a plug but you know, Pete and I, with our retreats, say mm. Middlehurst, we spent we do different types of activities in terms of workshops and teaching. But let's take the Middlehurst retreat, which we run most years or every mm. year. It's about helping people 
technically, yes, and how to use their cameras and, and how to do some post-production or resolving their images or, in, or refining their interpretation of the file. Mm. But it's as much about the ideas of what they're, and Pete said there, what he's trying to say. We we often look at something and we've all maybe been to the same location. We'll say to the person, what what is it that attracted you? What is it you want people to be uh, aware of that you saw, that you liked, that you responded to and helping them then finesse the file. It's not about, you know, creating something that wasn't there. It's about bringing out something, fostering something that was already inherent in the image, but bringing it out, making it easier for the viewer to see mm-hmm. and experience. Okay, guys, we're going to have to uh, wrap it up, Russ. We're going to be here for the rest of our lives. And this is one of the, those things that you could quite, you know, you could sit here for hours uh, quite literally um, discussing, but uh, Peter, where to from here, mate? What's what's happening in you know Peter Reithway photography world? Well, if I'm quick enough, I might be able to walk across the road and get myself a piece of carrot cake for afternoon tea. Very nice. <laughs> I've actually um, I'm involved in the uh, acquisition of a new camera. And um, mm. I'm quite excited about uh, what I have. I'm using some old lenses, um, mm. and uh, I, I think I've finally worked out how to get uh, sharp images with the new system. But I'm not going to say anything more just at the moment. But, is it um, is it a Canon five D Mark two? Is it a, sorry? Is it a Canon five D Mark two with a twenty four one hundred five L series? <laughs> just asking for a mate. No, no, it's not. But uh, it's, uh, I guess, yeah, so I'm uh, I, I'm going to practice photographing around my, the northern beaches up here where I live, so that, that's mm. the plan. So mm. if you see a funny old bloke in a hat with a funny-looking camera, that could be me. Yeah, and uh, look, if you, if you do see him, go up and shake his hand because uh, he will give you $50. <laughs> <laughs> if it's somebody that's not, Pete, they're going to be rather surprised. No, 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 I will give you $50, and that will be changed from the $100 note you've handed over. <laughs> if, if, <laughs> typical accountant. <laughs> what about you, Tony? Um, I'm just uh, this morning or this afternoon going mm. to finish off the promotion for next year's mastermind group. So I run a mastermind group every year for five people at a time. We run from sort of March through to November. And um, interestingly enough, every year I've done it, I've never ended up doing the advertising because people hear about it and email me and I've already looks like we got three for the five spots. But oh, cool. I'll still go through the process and... Mm. Pick up the others. I've got one person who's done three in a row. She loves it. So that's an unashamed plug for that. Coaching, still doing my coaching, got a lot of that. Got two other projects on the go, an exhibition mm. next year, now now locked in for uh, May mm. at Linton and Kay. So I'm looking forward to that. And I've just opened up another project that's kind of firmed it up this morning. And mm. that's really exciting. It's a different area for me completely, and mm. I can't say much more about that. But the mm. other thing is, of course, Pete didn't mention it, and he's so humble. Um, not really. So we humble. have we have so our workshops humble. and tours that we normally do, and we're getting pretty confident now that the next year's Middlehurst will go ahead. Although it does look like it's already booked out, um, mm. but we may open up a second week. So if anybody out there is interested in joining us at Middlehurst mm. in uh, June, mm. that'll be in the early part of June. We do the seven day. Middlehurst Retreat, we have a printer, we take maximum of about six or seven people, we have helicopters, sometimes a plane, we fly in, it's on a private station, uh, four-wheel drives up riverbeds, um, and it's all about pursuing your own creative um, ideas, helping helping you find out more about who you are as a creative uh, image maker. Mm. And we're also doing a road trip, we can't do our US road trip in February for obvious reasons, so mm. we're starting to finalise details on one in March in New Zealand, which will be really cool actually we're going to start somewhere in the south island around queenstown 
we're going to do maybe a boat ride on one of the sounds and then we'll go up through the mountains and mm. over to the west coast, probably catch up with Andrus Apps, have a look at what he does mm. and then work our way up to Middlehurst and spend three or four days up there. So that'll be, a, I don't know, 11 days, Pete. Is that something we talked about? Uh, something like that, yeah. yeah. So if anybody's interested in those, a lot of the spots are gone because the people who booked with us for mm. 2020 have held mm. their spots, pretty much all of them. Mm. So they're already booked in. But we will have a couple of spots on each of those trips depending on what mm. our current people choose to do. And, and look, say say you're a lowly photographer like myself listening to this podcast and, and, and you sort of think, geez, you know, would, would someone like Tony Hewitt even, even talk to the likes of me? How, how do they get in touch with you? Uh, well, you can go to Tony at TonyHewitt.com. Mm. You can also go to my Instagram account, Tony.Hewitt, and uh, send me a message through that. Mm. And Peter's uh, uh, Peter Eastway at Better Photography, or Eastway at Better Photography. Actually, should we give com. Peter's telephone number out, his mobile? Okay. <laughs> four yeah, two. It's 911. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, we should uh, wrap it up there. A, well, uh, a quick. Sorry. Before, I was going to say, before we go, I had something I'd written down I wanted to share, and I thought before I do mine, I'm going to get Pete. Pete, what is the strangest or quirkiest travel hack, quick one, that Ooh, you could share with Oh, that's a good idea. Everybody? Yeah, good one. Oh. Um, Something uh, you've learnt over the years. Well, well, I'll have to give this one to Mike Langford and Jackie Rankin, and um, I think it's every time I go into a motel, I go and I steal the, um, the shower cap, um, not because my hair gets wet or I even have to worry about it, but because if it does rain and I'm out there, it makes a great cover for the camera and lens. Ooh, very cool. nice. What, what about you, Tone? Well, one I've got is an interesting one. So it's not as relevant now because we don't travel for as long distances, but you'll still do some internal flights. And something I picked up a few years ago that made a massive difference, I got really buggered, pissed off, whatever, sitting in planes and watching the glare on the TV screen when I'm stuck on a movie mm. and the glare from my shirt, I could see it in the screen. It would bug the crap out of me. <laughs> the glare from your and shirt. Then, then I realised. <laughs> what shirt were you I, wearing? Jesus. Well, anything that was Sorry, not Sorry, didn't realise I was so, talking to Ken Duncan. But now what I do is I make sure I've got a black T-shirt in the flight. Oh. Because if I have a black T-shirt on, I don't get a reflection on the screen. Right. It also means when I'm looking at my laptop working on my pictures, I, even if, even with a light blue or a light green, you get a bit of a glare mm. by wearing a black shirt. I've done some of my best work with a really multicoloured T-shirt on. Yeah, mm. but Pete, mm. we all know you need that assistance. I'm, <coughs> I'm trying to help people who want to have a you know honest and genuine image in front of them. Either. So so that's because often in the planes the, the the movies are so dark, you know. So mm. the black T-shirt. Um, that certainly helps. So that's my strange and weird travel. That is that is a great piece of advice. And, of course, uh, what you didn't mention there is black is actually very slimming too. <laughs> well, oh, thanks a lot, Carl. <laughs> I'm talking about myself. <laughs> Guys, we, we're going to have to wrap it up. Look, I just want to give you an update too. If you uh, if you know who Dave Morse is, and um, he's the gentleman that uh, takes uh, one photo every day, at Point Walter in uh, in Perth. That's that's all he does. He takes the same shot every day, and it's amazing. He had neurosurgery last week. He's a, a Parkinson's sufferer, uh, so went in for neurosurgery. And when somebody goes in for neurosurgery, you, you're never really sort of 100% sure what the outcome is going to be. Uh, I touched base with him last week, and um, he claims that he feels like he was hit by a truck, but he's still with us. So there you go. Oh, yep. Um, hope you uh, hope you get well soon, mate. Um, just uh, onto the uh, photo walk too, that's a, a definite Gioa. That is November the 22nd, and it's going to happen in Fremantle. Tony, what do you have to say about that, mate? Uh, Christian, 
I, I was going to say Christian can't walk. That's why he's coming. Not coming. <laughs> um, no, look, as I said before, uh, it's a bit of fun. Uh, it's uh, where we talked about perhaps uh, bringing along um, at least a gold coin We just uh, for a charity. You don't have to pay Carwin and I. We're not going to accept any payment no, for it. No, um, but, but we'll get you a time, probably something like 6.30. We'll meet down there, hmm. spend a few hours walking the streets, and again, portrait, landscape, looking at light, looking at composition, uh, shooting the breeze, having a bit of fun, end up with a coffee. Should be a bit of fun. I just, before we go, want to say good luck to Christian on his ride. Uh, in all seriousness, he, you know, he does a lot of good things down there. Mm. Not just, maybe not this one, but I know he's done rides for charity. Mm. And as much as we give him crap, uh, I love the guy. He's a fantastic photographer, a great human being, and a good role model for a lot of people other than maybe me and Pete. <laughs> all right, we'll wrap it up there, boys. I love you guys. <laughs> love you more. Stay right there, Thanks, guys. Thanks, Carwin. Thanks for having us. Stay, stay right there. 